1: For me, that wasn't an option. I never
0: really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your
1: personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What? My just today is Virginia Aksan, who has written the Ottomans 1700 to 1923 an Empire Besieged. And I also asked when Justin opened up with uh, how, how did you get into the Ottoman Empire?
0: It began uh, when I was 15, actually, I was in Turkey for a year. And the age at, at that age it was 1961, uh, 61, 62. And I attended uh, the American Academy for Girls, also known as the Yuskidar Kuzli Seyasi. Uh, I was there because my father was teaching English and um, this is when the, the new Turkish state was um, trying to inculcate English as the language of a second language they were learning. Um, he was teaching at Marif Koleji in Moda, in Istanbul. And I, so I saw a city that was then under two million people. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it was um, quite the most extraordinary adventure I'd ever had. So, well, I can't imagine. <laughs> To that point, you know, I I come I was raised on Long Island in New York City, uh, um, so it was uh, an American broad kind of uh, adventure. So then I had the opportunity in various stages to learn some Turkish, pick up some Arabic, and uh, went back to do a PhD at the University of Toronto. There's some other little journeys in there I don't need to talk about, but.
2: Uh, <laughs> uh,
0: did a PhD at the University of Toronto, which I finished in 1991. So that's how I got started.
1: It actually just occurred to me today that next year it will be a hundred years anniversary since the fall of the Ottoman Empire, which is cr- kind of crazy to think about.
0: Well, I think that's a that's a good point. I think what's happening right now is we're witnessing a, a total revival of the way we think about this empire because of um, the centennial of World War One.
1: I actually came across the Ottomans for the first time by the Netflix series about the besiege the of Constantinople, which I really found fascinating. And I just was, uh, I was fascinated by them. And I just, this is something I going have to learn more about from my, in my case. So I really just kind of started reading more and more about it. And the more I read about it, it's fa- more fascinating, gets.
0: Was that the uh, BBC?
1: Netflix, Netflix production. Netflix pro- oh, production.
0: Netflix,
1: yeah. yeah. Okay. So, yeah, we are going to talk about Mahmoud II today. And what what is it about this sultan that makes him... He's kind of an important sultan, wouldn't you say, in the Ottoman Empire?
0: Right. Yes, he is the uh, sultan on the throne uh, at the time of the declaration of Tanzimat, that is the new order in which they uh, pledged to reform the empire. Um, and um, develop equality of citizenship and all, all kinds of promises were made in there, including a conscription that is creating an army of conscripts. Um, and it followed on the destruction of the Janissary, the old army of the Sultan uh, in 1826. So that's the most important thing, but you know, it's a very, very tumultuous time um, in the Middle East. Um, if you think about uh, what's going on around in the world. Um, the, the Ottomans will have two wars with Russia in, the, in that period. Uh, they've just come out of uh, three or four more in the, in the uh, 18th century. And uh, Napoleon has arrived in Egypt uh, with uh, Mahmud II's predecessor, Selim III. So from my point of view, I <clears throat> find it important as opening the revolutionary era
1: of the Ottomans and um, leading to the end fall of the empire altogether. So let's talk about the state of Anselim III a little bit before we get into the moment. uh, So (laughs) what was the state of the Ottoman Empire? We talked before the recording and you said that this was kind of the golden era of the Ottomans. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the empire, the borders it had and how widespread the empire was at this point.
0: Right uh well um you uh, interviewed and talked to Alan Mikhail, whose book on the Selim III talks about how but after Selim III Selim the
1: first I believe not the third
0: I'm sorry Selim the first and and and Suleiman uh the, Suleiman the magnificent as he's known um considered the widest advance uh bordered you're talking about territory bordered by the Danube by Uh, the Caucasus and Iran on the east, by the Red Sea and the Gulf. And and, uh, on the west, you're talking about, of course, the Bosphorus, which is always used, but into Rumelia. So as far as Belgrade and uh, just before, after, before 1700, they were as close as they could get to Vienna. So, and, and then the parts we often don't think about is Yemen. Arabia, and even into coasts of East Africa. So this is a widespread empire. And we still have trouble with what we want to call that territory. Is it the Middle East? Is it the Near East? Is it Eurasia, which is a term I like to use, and Europeans have a little trouble with, I think, uh, because it bridges Asia and, and Europe. Is it Southeast Asia? Is it Southwest Asia? Southwest Asia was the term the Brits used for a long time. So um, it's a huge territory and it's immensely diverse, ecologically diverse and and also in terms of people, immensely diverse. Mm. So by the time of Selim III, they have repeatedly lost major battles, mostly on the Danube with the Russians. The army is in total disarray the Janissaries have more or less disappeared and they're relying entirely on local coalitions of, of um what you might we call ions, you might call them strongmen, um local pashas who have who gathered regional armies, and um this is the status of the empire as the III takes the throne. <coughs>
1: Excuse me. Do they have any economy to modernize the army? Did it have, was it taught about modernizing the army into the 18th century states?
0: Right. So um, if you look at what's happening in Europe in the 18th century, there is a consolidation of armies around, um, around kingdoms and kings, right? Mm. Uh, and so the, the enemies of the Ottomans are the Austrians and the Russians, right? And um, those three land empires do have some trouble with economy and organizing the army, but Europe proper as represented by France and, and England will soon become the global empires are developing different ways of organizing their military forces. The Ottomans have trouble with securing taxes always. and. Uh, By the end of the 18th century, they've created tax farms, much like the French do. Mm. Uh, And those tax farms are then put into the hands either of officials in in Istanbul or of local officials, both of whom tend to be rapacious in the collection of the taxes that have to go to the center. So the economy is a bit bust. Now, you need to talk to Shevget Pamuk, who is the expert on the Ottoman economy uh, and works Gradually learning a lot about the way money circulated at the end of the did still?
1: Did they still do the Christian taxation that if you were a Muslim, you have had to pay extra tax at this point?
0: If you're a peasant, you're paying tax regardless.
1: It didn't matter if you were Muslim or Christian like in the old days. Right.
0: You were paying taxes. The, the uh, Christians are paying what's called the jizya, which is a, a head tax which was supposedly in compensation for not having to fight in the, in the army. So the Janissaries were the army. They were presumed to be Muslim, although in fact, the Janissaries were always packed with uh, from nationalities from all over the world, basically. But they were presumed to be Muslim, and it's a Muslim army, it's a Muslim uh, um, palace, it's a, it's a Muslim empire, uh, and the Christians are tolerated, they pay that extra tax. That will continue to be one of the major uh problems to the nineteenth century. What do you do about that? How do you draw the Christians into the new army?
1: Because as we know, the most of the a lot of people actually converted not to have to pay the tax. The Jews, I believe you said I'm sorry if I say that wrong, but that's that so that would decrease the taxation as people, you know, converted to being. Well, migrants.
0: that's part of it. That is part of it. So then one of the big discussions underway is now around around confessionalism, that is, you know, who is Christian, who is Muslim. Um, I think you would find that the the argument falls well, the the sultans really didn't try to convert people because they lost money. Right. Mm. And and in the 19th century. They, they pledge to put, make the Christians equal citizens. That means putting them into the conscription system, but nobody wants to do that. That becomes a, a true problem. Um, partly, it's argued that the Muslim soldiers don't want to fight side by side. They don't want Christian officers. But the other part of it is the, the money that the Christians are contributing to the tax base.
1: So then, they have at the after a while as well involved Muslim children to the Janissary corps as well, too, because the lack yes. of yes. Christian the Janiss- tributes.
0: The Janissary tributaries, it was called the Devshirme and it was a surgun, It means a gathering. Mm-hmm. So every four or five years, they would send Ottoman officials out into the in, into the provinces, largely the Balkans. Mm-hmm. Um, to collect children between the ages of 13 and 18. And that was also considered a tribute. uh, And they took them from the families. Um, But that's finished. That is finished by 1700. That practice is finished. Other ways of coming in, what is replaced it in a lot of ways is what is known as a gulam system. So Circassians of Caucasus area are brought into the court and join a particular pasha's household. Again, it is a kind of uh, enslavement, but when you became a Janissary, you were essentially liberated. So uh, the whole way in which the army uh, was gathered and organized and paid is undergoing systemic um, renewal. Throughout the 19th century,
1: was the 1800s uh, the time when the Ottomans were at the maximum height, and they they could not expand any further further at this point?
0: Yeah, I think the border the border um, with Europe is pretty much fixed after 1715. There are there's a couple of major battles, major uh, wars, and fights in there. Uh, n- not just Vienna, but uh, thereafter they go to war again. It it involves Austria, Hungary, and Italy. And by 1750, the European border is pretty much set, and um, they can't go any further. It's worth knowing that Vienna is far more distant from Constantinople than Baghdad is. Mm -hmm. So, sorry, yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. The other way around. The other way around. Uh, Vienna's like 500 miles, and and uh, Baghdad's 1,300 miles, something like Mm. that. So it's Um, you know, their concentration in Europe is for a reason. And those, the other thing that we have to think about is uh, Wallachia, Moldavia, Bulgaria, Romania, Serbia, all of them are supplying um, uh, the, the city, which is huge, of Istanbul with supplies. That means sheep, that means grain, the food that you need to feed the army.
1: And as we know, that's, Mostly came from Egypt, right? That's where the grain supply would would derive from.
0: Sorry, say that. that, that
1: Egypt was the main delivery of grain right. supply, like right. in the Roman times. Right.
0: Right. You get something like honey. You need you need sugar. You need flavoring. Honey comes out of the Balkans largely, so hmm. it's uh, um, the supply issue is has become a true problem by 1800 hmm. when the territories keep. Carving
1: themselves off from the empire. So, okay, let's start with Mahmud II now. And uh, how does he gain the throne? Is it by the classic Ottoman way, by killing his brothers and uh, gaining the throne in the in the, in the classical sense fitted it that way, or how how did, is, it, is, it, too, is it is it only child him. like Solomon Moss? Or how did it does he gain the throne? Mahmoud II is the last of the
0: Ottomans. Basically, he comes. He's brought down off the roof. Uh, it's, uh, that's why I call it the Revolutionary Age. Selim III, there's a huge city rebellion against uh, Selim III. Selim III is the one who begins the revolution, the new order. And he is trying to create a new, new bunch of troops, regiments, new troops mm. uh, in Napoleonic style, side by side with the Janissaries. And that doesn't mm. go. It won't go over. It, it's just not possible. The Janissaries
1: are way to corrupt at this point. to allow that to happen, right?
0: Yeah. The um the Janissaries have, have become um well, I, I often refer to them as the voice of the people. That is to say, they can they're the only ones who can stand up to the Sultan and say it's not gonna work. And they always have to be consulted when the new Sultan is enthroned. He has he gives them what's called the Julus She gives them a big Bonus when a new sultan is enthroned. So Selim III comes to power in the middle of a crisis, and he does two things. He says, "I've got to go to Europe to get information," and he starts sending uh, diplomats out to bring report back on what what's actually going on in Europe. Mm. Before that, all the all of the the um, Diplomatic community, the European communities in Istanbul were conveying with two, were talking to one another and conveying information to the Sultan. So the Sultan, Sinim decides, I've got to get more information here. The other thing he does is understand from all of his advisors that the army is completely defunct, that, that it has to move to new kinds of technologies, it has to move to new kinds of organization, to discipline, etc. And um, So he begins the Nizami Jadid, as it's called, New Order. Eventually, quite apart from uh, Napoleon's arrival Mm -hmm. in Egypt in 1798, the streets of Istanbul are very discontent with Selim III, and they rise up against him. And in the course of that, um, Mahmoud II is hidden away, and he is the last Ottoman to come out of hiding and be enthroned he was what age 19
1: 18 19 wasn't there talk about one point that other that sorry not, that Napoleon was going supposed to come to the Istanbul and train the army and help reform the army himself was? that Napoleon I read oh, yeah. somewhere that yeah. he was supposed yeah. to go there just imagine a different history might have been if he actually <laughs> went through with it
0: well I mean, he touches down in Egypt very briefly and then runs back to run, you know, take on the war with Europe again. But uh, um, uh, Napoleon in Egypt does inaugurate a new era there. And you have Mehmet Ali, who immediately adopts um, the Muhammad Ali, as he's more commonly known, um, Mehmet Ali in Turkish, um, becomes the ruler of Egypt for the Ottomans, for the Ottoman Sultan and challenges uh, Mahmoud II, one one of the other possible uh, ends of the empire uh, in a great civil war that is finished finally in 18, uh, it ends 1839, Mahmoud II dies, and then um, um, order is restored. But um, there, so there's this chaos that's driven by not just the arrival of the global powers, the British and the French in the Eastern Mediterranean, But also in the attempt to revive the army, the uh, empire itself has to go through this convulsive shift to new technologies, new ways of thinking, new ways of ordering, new ways of of, of, uh, uh, arranging um, your military in regimental fashion, in Napoleonic fashion. Um, They adopt that pretty uh, wholesale.
1: So yeah, back to Mahmoud II and you said that there was a revolution, sorry for the struck there for a little bit, but you said there was almost a revolution thrown on here. You know,
2: well, sense. I, I
0: picked that word, yes. I picked that word because we don't often say that uh, a revolution can be driven by the head of state, but Mahmoud II understood that he was taking the, uh, the international stage, that that he had he had to address the, the European powers in order to preserve the empire after he has taken care of hmm. the revolutions, the, the actually resistance hmm. from this now antiquated army, um, uh, the Janissaries.
1: Hmm. Is he the so, only brother he has to worry about or does does he have rivals that he have to take care of?
0: Nope, uh, there's no rivalry. Um, what he will have um abdul majid there's a whole bunch of children that are uh from various of the predecessors from uh, mustafa the third uh um not mustafa the third it's even abdul hamid
1: mustafa um, the third was the mad sultan right he was one of the mad sultans
0: <laughs> no no
1: and, and, and there was there's a, I remember reading somewhere that there was some period of <laughs> mad, so there was a mustafa that was a Sort of thrown to us. There is an argument
0: for Ahmed III, Mm. who is the so-called Tulip Age at the turn of the 1700s, Mm. who stabilizes Istanbul by having 16 children who actually survive,
2: Mm.
0: and um, they marry these into these Pasha households. You get the creation of administration that's very much different from Mm. "let's kill off one another," Mm. but they're still operating on the the patrimony of the the sultanic purse. And, and, and that carries way over into Mahmoud Ii um, mm. when you get when when one of the things you have to think about in Europe is at what point the military develops independence from uh, from the, the patrons of the of, of the kingdoms right of the mm. of emperors and kings and this this thing takes a lot longer in the Ottoman Empire for there to be uh, civil civil service developed uh, so independent, Military academy, shall we call it, general staff, the kinds of things that uh, run uh, contemporary armies uh, just take well into the 19th century.
2: Hmm.
1: So well, Muhammadmmed said gains the throne, and what, what is the first thing that he to do when he, when he gains the throne? What does he choose to do?
0: <laughs> he comes He is enthroned by a coalition of these provincial lords who come to Istanbul with their armies to rescue him. And that is how he is put on the throne. And what he signs in the course of that is something called the Seneri İttifak, it's an agreement with those provincial landlords that they can more or less, they will support him if he leaves them alone. Mm. So that's why many look at this as a new era. That you know, there's an agreement between king and, and king and and rule mm. and uh, the ruled between the rulers and the ruled. Mm.
1: Is there are they trying to get more a constitutional monarchy? Like Europe is starting to get at this point, or did they...
0: he aims at a constitutional monarchy? But the first thing after that that he does when he is able to consolidate power, and that has to do with bringing in all his religious officials and saying we're going to deal with you this way confiscating a lot of their what we would call um uh alienated um uh finances you know the bakfia mm. the wakuf, um are property set aside for the purposes of uh religion uh, as we have today um and so he confiscates he's a good confiscator <laughs> <laughs> he takes in a lot of money from uh, um uh, officials. There's even uh, a shocking moment when he executes a couple of his Jewish bankers and b- bankers particularly of the Janissaries and, and confiscates their estates. So he, he consolidates funds and then he goes to the countryside and systematically takes down many of the challenging uh, provincial lords we've talked about. So I, I refer to the latter period of Mahmoud II as um the the um the reign of terror mm. because he had henchmen that would go out and try to replace the existing ones with more compliant lords, mm. right? Yeah. This is the kind of thing in the 30 years war it was going on in Europe uh, in, in, in an earlier century.
1: Mm. So just basically take from Europe and choose has not read doesn't know that this uh, happened in europe i want to try the same in my my empire
0: well (laughs) you know the whole question of translation or emulation uh of europe is undergoing considerable uh, renewal right now in the Mm. thinking of historians emulation yes but how does it pertain to your local system Mm. and uh, If you, for example, take the question of tax farming, that is removing, allowing individuals to suddenly own property and pay their own taxes and serve in the army, which is part of citizenship. If Mm. you look at that, that contest goes on for 100 years in the Ottoman Empire because Mm. of the strength of these local systems and the tax farms that people long distance are controlling the way in which money moves from... Mm. the the ground into Istanbul. So um, that would be a local problem. That would be an Ottoman problem, not necessarily a European problem. But the idea Mm. of constitutionalism, the fascinating thing is there a hundred different constitutional ideas afloat Mm. in the Ottoman Empire. It comes out of the Armenians, the Greeks, the the Ottoman army itself. Out of Mahmut second, as he understood his constitutional monarchy, so the ideas are very much there, and you know there's so much going on at the same time, this effort to pacify the countryside, the effort to introduce new ways of organizing, fighting manpower mm-hmm. in conscription, the effort to uh, to earn money for uh, the running of the empire, all those things are suddenly afloat, up for grabs, and under discussion at, at multiple levels. And then what happens is when the Christians in the empire start to get support from overseas in serious ways, and the British and the French involve themselves in the territories. know how it
1: goes when the British involve themselves.
0: Yeah, well... In Egypt to start with of course.
1: So how much power does he have does he have the, when you, we' talking about constitutional power monarchy, does he have absolute power still or is it limiting his powers at this point or is it still is it not constitutional as we know it today? What's is there? The...
0: Ex- excellent question. 1839 is known as the Ulhani Edict in which he declares equality of citizenship. Uh, before um, European um, representatives in the first time this is done. Quality of citizenship, uh, some effort uh, about conscription how everybody must serve in the army um, and the whole uh, the vague references to what should be done about the provinces and how it, uh, they should be organized, et cetera. This document is still being discussed as what actually it said. Right now, people are writing about it and saying, what did he actually try to say? But this was his notion of constitutionalism. Whether or not the Muslims standing around him and the Il-Mihyeh, the religious class standing around him understood that that meant that every Christian was going to be like every Muslim in the empire mm. is still being debated. And so it's mm. repeated again in 1856. This is after <clears throat> 1856, There's another Hati Humayun, as it's known. This is, um, um, again, a declaration of how we're going to move forward with constitutionalism, what change looks like, uh, what promises are made. And uh, at that point, it looks like um, Europe is kind of strong-arming the Ottomans to do this. So, you know, Ahmad II, who is initiating it, uh, then it's strengthened again in 886 uh, under Abdel-Majid. And then you have the Crimean War, which brings Britain and France right into the middle of uh, Ottoman territories. And from there on in, they are mixing everywhere, France and Britain particularly. But Italy is involved, of course, Germany is involved by the mm-hmm. end of the century, all in trying to see that the Ottomans stick to what they promised to do in terms of reformation.
1: As we know in Europe, especially some in Scandinavia, where when when we started getting constitutional monarchy, that there was the king had still power. So it wasn't constitutional like it was just a symbolic sense. He still had power, but this the case as well, that he still had power.
0: That's what you asked but,
1: me. And
0: all the way to 1876, when the first constitution of the Ottoman Empire is declared by Abdul Hamid, he still has power. The first thing he does once he's put on the throne is to close down the, the parliament. Mm. So that question is still up for grabs by the end of the empire.
2: Mm.
1: But something that we talked about is Egypt, and it's kind of a red line across. This episode, I guess. So what does it mean for because as we talked about, that's where the a lot of the grain supply comes, right? That that's where a lot of the materials that elements need to feed the population, etc., comes from. So when a Poland comes and they invade Egypt, how what does it mean losing the, this province
2: for the Ottomans?
0: Right. <sighs> I have I have to think about that. The, <laughs> what they um, they're losing um, primarily. Is,
1: Egypt is kind of a massive and important.
0: I'm trying to think uh, about what the, what to the mm-hmm. emphasize because there are lots of things that are going on there. Um, Egypt of course, is it still
1: relevant though. Is it still relevant kind of as a province? Yeah.
0: Yes, it's still the gateway to um, Mecca and Medina. And um, you know uh, that's the way a lot of the um, pilgrimage would, would mm-hmm. come through that way. Uh, they are Abdul Hamid is building a, a railway to the Hijaz. I mean, it's it's these are these are uh, important questions that I think we've ignored a bit. And seeing how the Ottomans desperately try to get into the international community, legal community at the end of the 19th century. But early on, that's a hundred years before, um, what Egypt had become was Mamluk territory. And this makes me want to bring up uh, something I think is worth saying about, in in continuation of the conversation you had with Alan Mikhail um, about this business of having always to deal with these highly autonomous, highly, uh, mobile, uh, military formations like the Mamluks in Egypt. And, you know, the, the Napoleon is having to deal with men on horseback with his highly organized regiments. It's it's one of those moments military historians like for the way in which, uh, the superior technology mows down the ignorant or tribalism or the barbaric (laughs) tribalism. I think that's a, repeated notion about how the whole Middle Eastern um history unfolds. And mm. when Alan
1: because as we know in the Middle East was kind of the West in to put it that way, in, yes. To simplify it in in the middle Middle Ages, it was the place to be, I would say, in, in the wild
0: west. <laughs>
1: yeah, not, not the West, but like the West, you that what Europe became in the Middle Ages, that this was a um, the, mm. That it was kind of this. Uh, I, don't, I don't. have the word for it right now. But uh, I'm trying to think, of the, it was kind of the Middle Ages in in the Middle East had this sort of golden age. To put it this way. Put it that way. They were pro. Oh
0: yes. Had all this- oh right. Baghdad under mm. the Abbasid. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And the Ottoman. Uh, you know, the original Ottomans emerge. Mm. Uh, out of the naturally, the Seljuks who come mm-hmm. out, of, out of Asia, out of mm-hmm. Central Asia and they're descendants of the Tatars and the Moguls, mm-hmm. the, the right? So uh, my point my but, real point, really but, is that the territories of the Ottomans are sitting not just on borders, as we talked about with Eurasia or Middle East. Or but Africa. not
1: just that, it's just, just also as well culturally and scientifically astronomy, that's the Middle East was a place to be in the Middle Ages. If yeah, you... I got
0: you right. The interesting thing about that is that the, the Turks don't get that uh, respect because the end of the Abbasids is brought about by the Mongols, right? Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the the successors to that, the Ayyubids and the and the Seljuks mm-hmm. and so forth, um, use the Turks largely as their military man, mm-hmm. Turkish. Uh, warriors, but they're not given quite the credit um, that the Abbasids are for the mm. astronomy and languages and preservation of Greek culture and all of those mm. things that accompany the Arab the Arab dynasties. Mm. It's, it's sort of the way the, the histories are written in Europe about that. Mm. But anyway, um, so.
1: Just an example that with them as a technology advice, that would be that the technology would be the fall of the Middle East. European technology across the because they didn't manage to modernize um, as quickly as Europe did.
0: Right, right. So, military historians talk, talk about the military revolution, how Europe finds figures out how to make fortresses, how to build the cannons, how to talk about the arc of bullets, how to create rifling, how to, you know, all of those things that make, make for the modern army, and uh, how slow the Middle East is to adopt it. That's wrong. There are other things that occur to make it slow down, but the Ottomans are very, very astute about emulating Europe, and and there are foreigners and foreign technicians and scientists, etc., all over the empire. Hmm. The doctors of the doctors of the Sultan are Jewish. I mean, there's just there are there ways in which the palace itself keeps up, but the society at large does not. So, well, I mean, by the end of the end of the 19th century, you have an arms race going on. The only reason, the main reason Bismarck is interested in being involved in, in the Ottoman Empire is just because they can sell them arms. Mm.
1: Yeah, let's yeah. talk about that. Well, no, sir. how the Bismarck Anglo-Ottoman alliance? How does that happen? How? How why did, why does? So how does it? The Ottomans we'll choose right Germany.
0: To, right. we go right back to Mahmoud II. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Mahmoud II, Helmut, Helmut von Molke, the elder, is uh, part of a group that is brought in by Mahmud II to help them organize and reform the Artillery Corps. And, you know, that's the earliest of the Prussian connection. But it continues through the 19th century. So by the 1880s, you have Abdul Hamid himself, the most paranoid of all of the sultan's. Uh, requesting a German commission and German uh, uh, teachers and trainers and, uh, you know, um, arms technicians, artillery technicians, engineers. So there is uh, von der Goltz, as he's known, uh, who comes into the Ottoman context, reforms the military academies, the curriculum of the military academies reforms, creates a general staff, and it's in this context that Enver, you know, the Committee of Union Progress, that the, the, the Turks that take the Ottomans through World War I emerge in the military. So the German connection is more about sales, emulation of the Turks of the, of the um, prowess of the Germans when it has, comes to manufacturing by the end of the 19th century.
1: Is the only reason that Germany does do this alliance is because they get money out of selling weapons? Is that the only reason, or is it more to gain from this alliance?
0: Right. I think that, uh, remember Germany is a a new player on the international um, colonial, global colonial power scene. And so they're having to finance finance the uh, acquisition of all the territories in in Africa they get and part of that is pushing the industrialization that's going on in the 19th this is Bismarck Bismarck is not necessarily interested in territory and and Turkish or Ottoman territories but he does want the connection but it's really
1: does he want German influence in the Ottoman Empire as well or is it?
0: yeah so uh, there is a there's a Uh, A very interesting character by the name of Mahmoud Shevket, who spends 10 years as a protégé of Götz in Germany. He translates many of the German manuals into Turkish. There's a whole connection here going on. Um, The idea that the Ottomans might go with Britain into World War I uh, is, I don't think, uh, very credible by the end.
1: How does how does Britain feel that they care at all about the Ottoman Empire but that they decided with Germany as an alliance and not Britain are they trying to intervene in the alliance like they usually do in this in the Britain's <laughs> British sense that they try to intervene in everything?
0: Well, if you look, if we jump back to Selim the third, you don't mind my leaping all over yeah. the, the periods here. Selim the third is uh, he's a francophile. He's corresponding with, uh, you know, various people in in France about the the need for change in the Ottoman Empire. And um, the European historians have often wondered why he he stuck to Napoleon, even after Napoleon had come and attacked uh, the Ottomans. And they had to organize a a whole um, um, uh, campaign against him to march down and kick him out of Egypt, ultimately, in 1801. Not him, but the, the French who were left there. Uh and the shift to Germany occurs, I think, under Mahmoud II, but the Francophile connection continues too. The British, the British, in spite of this notion about
1: are they variable? No
0: in the 18th century, the people have looked at the correspondence with the with the ambassadors in Istanbul say, the French were, had consuls all over the Balkans. You know, they, had, they had representatives in all kinds of places. They were reporting to the Ottomans as well as back to France, right? They were keeping the, the Sultan informed. The, the Brits, for every single uh, um, um, envoy or, or correspondence that came to uh, a particular consul For one, for Britain, there might be 20 from France. I mean, you know, it's just, it was just the French had been there longer. They were very interested in the economy of the Eastern Mediterranean and and had connections, more connections with the Greeks. There were, you know, it was, they just were more embedded than the British. It is the end of empire when they take Egypt Mm. that the British become more important to the whole scene. Mm. But they They don't really
1: care about that German side of the the Ottomans, that that's none of their business, to put it this way.
0: Well, they're certainly involved in uh, rebuilding the Navy. I mean, the, one of the contexts for the, for the declaration of war is that the, the British, who have undertaken to build a couple of dreadnoughts for the Ottomans, refused to release them, confiscate them. Mm. And, and and Germany jumps in. I'm
1: talking about when, at the start of the alliance or at, at the height. Oh, the right,
0: right, right. Well, you know, they, they The interesting part of where the British get involved is over the Horn of Africa, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Ethiopia on down. And that has to do with Yemen. When the the British are in Yemen, which is what, 1830s, 40s, 60s, somewhere in there. I can't remember the date, Uh, you know, that their interest in the Indian Ocean and and and the connection with Iran to prevent Russia, the whole the whole latter context of the Ottoman uh, struggle is between in the great power mind is between Britain and Russia, mm. right? And so that's how they they get yeah. involved.
1: I mean we we'll talked of course about the Russia-Turkish war in a second. But yeah, so, uh, so I want to talk their
0: their their engagement comes at a later moment.
2: Mm.
0: And um they see they fight with the Ottomans. Remember, in 1801, that imperial campaign and its British soldiers are fighting against uh, Napoleon, mm. right? Yeah. Um, and then they have another opportunity in the Crimean War, sitting side by side, Sebastopol. Mm. So I call it the imperial mindsets, the very different ways of dealing with your army, the way you organize and strategy and all that. And the British. Commanders, and certainly in Crimea, the, the
2: head,
0: head, head guys were, mm. were very contemptuous of the Ottoman command. They were, they were just, you know, there, there wasn't any love lost, I don't think. Mm. The, so the okay. French, Polish, the Hungarians, all of those who spill over into the empire after 1848 have a different relationship with the Ottomans. They, they serve them well, they become Muslims, they be part, part of their mm. renovation. There are 50 to 100 commanders who are converts at any one time in the modernized army.
1: Mm. Now, before we go to the Russian, Russian Turkish, Turkish war, I want to talk about the disband, which is something that we talked about earlier as well, but a little more in-depth, which is what perhaps Mahmoud II might be most famous for disbanding the Janissaries. So how, how does it do that? How does it, Because the way, if I remember correctly, it's, it is quite brutal the way he does it.
0: Yeah. It's one of those stories um, uh, that the the actual number of people mowed down in Constantinople or in Istanbul Mm. um, um, varies from 1,000 to 10,000. But uh, I think you find the public finally turning against the Janissaries.
1: Does he realize this that if he, if he wanted public support and if that the, the janissaries are the way too corrupt that they, this, can't doing, this, yeah. the, this can not be done, this work anymore?
0: Yeah, right. There's a whole—I mean, there's conspiracies galore going on and various oh. factions, etc. Mahmud slowly, slowly—I mean, after all, he's on the throne as of 1808, and it's not to 1826 that he feels he can actually move against the janissaries on the streets right
2: yeah
0: and uh, all that time there are after uh, you know there are some notion of continuing these new model troops and they are fighting on the streets with one another the janissaries you know there's a lot of chaos in istanbul in the period and so mahmud finally gets a hold of it he has a person who's in charge of the janissaries who's with him about getting rid of them at that point you know helping helping to change the system. And um, he has Husrev Pasha, who's a, uh, who's a, who is a um, veteran of Egypt, and he has been uh, in charge of the uh, renewal that has been going on for, for a long point. Mm. And after 26, uh, they'll, they'll really move forward. So there, again, the Janissaries, there's a context, the Janissaries decide in multiple cases they're going to revolt again, and uh, it's, uh, at, at this point, Mahmoud. Enough is, there,
1: is enough. Huh? Enough is enough. 19-
0: enough is, the city says enough is enough. You mm. know, they they all talk, they talk in the 18th century about the citizens. That is, the, the people who have to supply the Janissaries with their boots and their, you know, their... Uh, their swords and their outfits and, and their food and whatever it happens to be have had enough they've all had okay. enough and so uh, clearly uh, what Mahmoud ii does is prepare his artillery the thing that he spends all his time reforming is the cannoneers and they're the ones who put who take down the Janissaries in the end
1: so what does this have to say for the Ottoman army I I, I'm trying to start thinking and been thinking about this actually for a while. And would you say that this kind of the disbandment of the Janissaries would made the Ottoman army irrelevant in a sort of way? That this is, is the kind of the fall of the Great Ottoman Army? I mean, you understand why he does this as we just talked about? Excellent but...
0: question. Another excellent question. Um, the there are many who say 1826 is the end of empire. Or 1839, you know, the, the move to constitutionalism, that's mm. the end of the empire. I think there is a considerable willingness to constitute it as a constitutional monarchy, but then they have to confront the power of the Sultan. And it's really not until the turn of the century, 1909, that they see it as eliminating the Sultan altogether. So it's a very good question. When does the empire end?
1: And, I mean, not that the army itself, but the army no. is kind of irrelevant after the, the army, fall of the becomes huge armies.
0: because they're following, they, they, they're organizing along the Prussian model. They have a whole relief system, as it is mm. called, a reserve system. They, by the time you get to Abdul there are seven seven seven separate regional armies with headquarters, with high schools, uh, and they are training. Um, military officers of all sorts uh, apart from the Christians. We can come back to that in a minute. Um, so you have Arabs who are a part of this uh, late Ottoman empire. It develops its own sort of rationale, its own way of working. And I call it, and you will read when you read Eric Erickson's, if you get around to the book, uh, um, counterinsurgency, he calls it, they create, all of these small armies that are used for pacification, that are used for imposing new rules, that are using the moment to bring peoples who haven't been in the empire at all, such as the Kurds. Mm. The 1840s. This, you know, they are, they are desperate to bring the Kurds into, to become regular citizens of the empire. They've had such autonomy to that point. The that resistance is enormous. So they're facing that in all the territories, uh, the main, remaining territories of the Ottoman. So, yeah, the new army has a new function. It's not the sons of the Sultan, mm. as the Janissaries were conceived. He was their great father. It's based on conscript, conscription, conscripts, and that requires censuses. So for the first time, the Ottomans have an idea how big their population is, how many there are, mm-hmm. how many they can take from it, et cetera.
1: And they find it necessary to do a consensus before this point?
0: Yeah, The census, the earliest census is from Istanbul in the 1830s. So they mm-hmm. you know, they got the, the census. It takes time for these things to get imposed. But you have a series of rather brilliant administrators uh, uh, across from 40s to uh, 70s who are conceiving a provincial reorganization for a matter, for example, 1867, there's a new province law. The whole idea is to get, try to grasp uh, territory from the hands of these local regional lords uh, in order to distribute to, to the new citizenry, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So those processes are going on at the same time, uh, all these rebellions, and so much of it is couched in terms of Christian Muslim disputes, for example, in 1840, Beirut, um, there's, there's various constituencies, militarized constituencies that are fighting one another. But it is the Christian communities that bring in Britain and France mm. to settle the dispute, right? So the what constitutes an Ottoman citizen is also very much under debate. This whole period, and where and how the Christians do or do not fit into it, is still something that we're we're thinking about. The most recent work is looking at legality, the way the legal system is being re- re- remit <coughs> rewritten to accommodate the new kinds of investment, the loans. You know, the Ottomans are are basically bankrupt after Crimean War, so they're they are, they're they're they're taking loans out they have to take loans out even for bismarck to sell guns to the ottomans he has to lend them money to do so mm.
1: makes sense makes sense <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that's true you know they they are um under public debt administration after the 18, 1880s
1: so that brings us to the russo-turkish war how does that work without the how well does the army function without the Janissaries? Where they done at this point? And how does the how, how does the rest of the Turkish War play out?
0: Which one are we talking about?
1: 1878, I think. Or, oh, or are yeah. we still in, in Muhammad's time then? I don't, <laughs> the, I don't have the time to, that's in my head right now.
0: <laughs> the immediate war after the reorganized after the elimination of the Janissaries, 1828 29, uh, uh, when um, Russia and, and the Ottomans go to war in, in Wallachia, Moldavia, as they have for centuries, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but the 1777, 1877 78 war, Russo Turkish war, as it's called, is the war of the Ottoman atrocity, Bulgarian atrocities. It lasts a very short time, but it becomes um, a social media, you know, an international scandal because some of these um, uncontrollable troops who are Ottoman, officially Ottoman irregulars in the new army, like Basha Bozooks, um, as they're called, they're, they're um, locally organized. They might be Albanian, they might be some other group, they might just be a, a, bunch, of, a bunch of guys that comes together as part of the uh, irregulars. They're, they're functioning in some ways as local police forces. Um, they there's a, a clash between some Bulgarian villages and these troops over uh, some simple uh, uh, all it takes is one little spark to get it going so <clears throat> the result is a serious a serious, um, a, a serious um, what's the word we use for these um a serious clash results in a serious number of deaths. This is quickly reported. It, it, that war has been dubbed the Breakfast War because Londoners are reading about every phase of it in the, in, in the newspapers. Um, uh, and then it becomes an international incident and it brings the powers to bear on the Ottomans. And it's after that that you see Britain and France and Germany and Russia, all of them keen on how they're going to deal with the Balkans in general. Um, So that again immediately falls on the constitution declared the arrival of Sultan Abdul Hamid. He closes down the parliament as a result of this war. So the question you're asking is how did they fare? Um,
1: Not very well.
0: Not very well. Initially, they lost the media.
2: Game.
0: Hmm. They lost the, the opinion, you know, hmm. the international opinion game. But and subsequently, there's, a, there's a, a great standoff at Plevna where the new reformed army does very well against a, a, a, being besieged by the Russians. So um, that, too, comes into play. They, they, they have made certain transitions. But European opinion is divided, mostly not divided on what should happen to them, which is they should disappear from Europe.
1: And on top of this, we do have the Great War of Independence as well. So how does that work out for the Ottomans?
0: Well, as you know, this is the 200th anniversary of the Greek uh, revolution, as they call it,
2: 1821.
0: Mm. And uh, there are all kinds of new books about this and lots of rethinking about what actually happened. Again, he was probably the first moment that the great powers arrived in, after Napoleon, of course, uh, arrived in, participated in the fight in the Morea, the Peloponnese of Greece, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and you have all kinds of carpetbaggers, as <laughs> someone has called them, uh, <laughs> in favor of the Greek, the Phi Hellenes, the, the those who are lovers of Greece, of the classical age, who come to, to the rescue of Greece. But the fighting on the ground, it just looks like the, you know... these. Is it uh, guerrilla
1: warfare, mostly, at the time?
0: Yeah. Right, guerrilla warfare. So, um, in that case, the, the the Ottomans do have the troops of Mehmet Ali, who's collaborating, hmm. cooperating with Mahmoud II, who sends troops to help, and those troops are well-organized. And um, it's just... The great powers, first of all, destroy the Ottoman Navy by blowing it up and then step in. And then there's never a war declared. They they just do it. Mm -hmm. Navarino in 1827, one of the significant moments when the great powers declare against um, the survival of the Ottoman Empire, it seems to me. Although the the whole, sorry, go ahead. Yeah,
1: doesn't the Greek independence movement as well have a lot of support in Europe, in the several Euro- European countries?
0: Yeah, yeah, and right. uh, it's a long time after. I mean, the original country of Greece had one third the population of Greeks; the other two thirds were all over the mm. remaining Ottoman territories. They're deeply embedded, and the Armenians even more so. They're everywhere. Every city of the empire has Greek citizens. It has uh, Armenian mm. citizens, and. <laughs> The accommodations that are made over the century to allow um, freedom of expression, to what we would call freedom of expression, to allow uh, the creation of new religious groups. There's a whole lot of uh, sectarianism going on among the Christians because of the Ottoman declaration that they can now be citizens hmm. of the empire. But Christians in the Muslim army wait until after 1900.
1: It is, I was reading. Uh this is a few few years later, 50, somewhat 50 years later, of course, but I was reading Jerry Mangos uh, From Sultan to Atatürk a while ago, and it was, it is fascinating to me how close in in the 1920s the Greeks actually were to conquer Constantinople, That without Atatürk, it, it might be in Greece now, and not
0: Turkey. Yeah, right. Well, um, yes, the Greek, after the after the uh, Nineteen eighteen, when, when um, the armistice, <coughs> when the Ottomans uh, surrender, there are a lot of Greek ships that arrive and unload uh, mm. around Istanbul, and this is where Izmir, you know, Smyrna mm. is burned, uh, uh, and that's the, the final battle between the Greeks and Turks in, in that period. Mm. And I'm not, don't, do not pretend to be an expert on all this, but it is the fact that the Ottoman World War I army had not been disbanded at that point. And Ataturk does not just have the peasants, you know, the, the Turkish view of this is that the the Turkish peasants came to his rescue and they gathered together and they, you know, defeated the Greeks. But there were still units of the, of the Ottoman military all scattered in Anatolia. So um, what do you call it? <laughs> what do you call it? The Greeks? Call it the a recon, uh What is it? The War of reconciliation? No, no, no. I don't know. I, I won't mm. misrepresent it. You, but, it, with you know, it
1: if you listen to the episode of find out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, because as I said, in much the same way that World War One is getting another look, so too the Greek Revolution, subsequent events. Right during mm. the Crimea, the Greeks were still very keen to take parts of the Turkey away from them. And the and the British found themselves having to defend the Ottoman Empire against the Greeks. Uh, And then you know they're they're basically financed by the European powers until what, 1860s, 70s in there. So um, is it a revolution? That's why I why I'm being very fluid with the definition (laughs) of revolution.
1: Yeah, another thing that that's fascinating as well is how tensions between Turkey and Greece are still te- pretty tense to this day. That it never really so resolved or dis- dissolved, I suppose. It's still pretty tense to this day.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I I think what our new work is is showing is the legacy yeah. of this period, and then the mandate period, and then the you know. The arrival, um, well, post World War II, even mm. uh, with how we get uh, a Middle East about which we, you know, where the Palestine-Israel question seems to be the major issue, but there's a whole lot more <laughs> of the legacy of that period. Humanitarianism and and the colonial co- colonial power and humanitarianism emerge together; they're sisters of one another, mm. and um, this happens. In the crimean war basically Mm. um and humanitarianism is with with the armenians Mm. after world war one this kind of response is embedded in united nations in the way we think about
2: Mm.
0: handling these questions so it's still with us
1: Mm. and thank you i think we're gonna leave it there so thank you so much for coming and it's been a pleasure to talk with you and yes Before you go, do you have any social media and anything you want to promote and a link to which we need to put in the description?
0: Uh, No. Uh, You know what? COVID. uh, uh, You know, it's a Rutledge book. um, And Rutledge is a a, a mega producer of books these days. Um, uh,
1: Actually, I would ask, where can people buy your book, The Ottomans, 1700, 1923, An Empire Besieged, if they are interested in reading your work?
0: Yeah, I think you can find it on Amazon, Amazon.com. Uh do also can go directly to Rutledge. Uh, Rutledge is Taylor and Francis is the mega body that controls the publications. Um, there it's just a stunning amount of work coming out on on the autumns right now. Mm. What I would say was just if you're stupid enough, the COVID-19 has driven us all onto the web. And you're mm. far more Collaborations across the world because it is a an area that has given rise to you know a whole German world about the about the historiography and mm. a French world and an English world and you know we we have had the opportunity in Balkans particularly who I think are themselves the younger scholars going through this renovation about this whole period and I it's uh, it's quite exciting.
1: What do you think has right. Re- Given the rise to the Ottomans recently, that has been a lack of, I wouldn't say the lack of, but I'm, I'm going to use the term anyway, lack of interest for until the recent years that, uh, ah. well, that in the Ottoman Empire.
0: I think they continue, I think Afghanistan, for one reason, um, you know, the end of that, which uh, looked very much like the end of empires after the mandates, uh, the the fact that we're far enough away, Centennials always drive always drive historians. So the World War I centennial did it. Um, you know the whole concert of Europe, what that was is undergoing with the EU is undergoing um, a reassessment. So time makes a difference. But it's also the case that uh, for unknown reasons, I mean just it seems like several dozen young Ottoman scholars, um, who have come out of the schools where my generation and, uh, uh, have been teaching, but also out of the areas, right? Mm. Out of the territories, the former territories of the Ottoman Empire, and they want to know about it. So, mm.
1: do you think that the sort of because you know as after the fall of certain areas where the Ottomans once ruled that they, the areas are kind of embarrassed about being, having been a part of that history. Do you think that's changing now? Do you think that is a case that they're not as embarrassed as they used to be of being a part of the Ottoman Empire anymore?
0: Right. Well, just one thing that, that uh, astonished me when I read about it, was that the British sent 2.5 million colonial soldiers to the Middle East in World War One. And it's only reason recently, with the centennial, that they are getting the recognition for what they actually, you know, the actual colonial troops. Mm. There's a book by Eugene rog- Rogan uh, on um, and the end of the empire in World War One, which is a fine, very fine uh, work. And I think he's the one that says it was a it was a Tower of Babel mm. <laughs> on the fi- fighting one another on the fields. You had African troops, you had. All the colonial troops of both France, Britain, Italy, you know, uh, fighting one another in Syria, in Iraq. And th- mm. who knew? I mean, it's history gets blurred and clarified mm. over time. And right now, I think we're filling the blanks.
1: You yeah, remember talking about uh, World War a while, a little while ago, and uh, as we know, this... No, it's not just Germany. It's not as simple to put it that way. It's not simple. But in World War Two, it's it's obvious that the Nazis were the bad guys and the Allies were the heroes. But in World War One, it's so much more complicated that Germany, there wasn't really kind of bad guy in that sense when we look at World War Two. But it's so much more complicated than that.
0: Right, and, and so there is a there is a tendency to cast back from your present place
1: mm.
0: when you're looking at history and, and be anachronis- anachronistic mm. about it and-,
1: and it's so much more complicated by the end of the Ottoman Empire as well that they weren't just a sick man of Europe in as we know them towards the fall
0: yeah right well
1: thank you, thank you so much for from- pleasure yeah, and before we go, I want to say that we are available. If you want to take a look at this podcast, we're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcast. We are also on Instagram on @h12 as well as TikTok now @h12 too. We are please consider liking and subscribe, and then rate us on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Please write a little review if you like. My name is Alan. Please like, share, and subscribe.